0: Oh, thank you all for tuning in to the 415th episode of Barbershop Sports Talk with me, your host, Daryl D. Lane, as always, wherever you are, however you may be listening, I want to thank you for making me and this show part of your day, whether it be via Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Pandora, or whichever podcasting on platform you may be listening to me via. Being a court from Buffalo, New York, as usual, going to have a great show for you guys. Going to have Nathan Swaffer on Uh, Sports editor for the Kansian, the student newspaper for the Kansas Jayhawks. They are the national champions in men's college basketball. They beat uh, North Carolina this past Monday night. So going to get Nathan's opinion on all of that. Now before we get to the conversation with Nathan, going to give my shameless plug as always. First time listener, thank you, but subscribe and follow right now. Also share this podcast with your friends and family whether it be via red threads, Facebook groups, etc., etc., check on the description below, specifically if you use Spotify. Uh, I have everything timestamped. Just click on it, and it will send you to whichever part of the podcast you would most like to listen to, folks. It's for your convenience. Follow me on Twitter, at NightTrend underscore Lane. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Just type in Daryl Lane, and you will find that I post two to five-minute clips of this podcast right here, as well as my syndicate show, outside the shop. And lastly, if you have Apple or iTunes, give me five stars and a great review. And for some odd reason, right? If you don't like the pod, then just don't say anything. Because you know what your mama told you. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to continue to give you guys my NFL draft rankings for the 2022 NFL draft. So... I'm just going to give you just a quick list. Number one is Evan Neal, off to tackle out of Alabama. Number two is Akeem Ekwanu, uh, off to tackle out of NC State. Number three is Tyler Linderbaum, a uh, center out of Iowa. Number four is Charles Cross, off to tackle out of Mississippi State. Number five is Trevor Penning, off to tackle out of UNI. Number six is Daniel Fele, off to tackle out of Minnesota. These are my top six offensive linemen. I all have first-round grades on all six of those names. I'm going to get back to those six later after I finish off the rankings. Number seven is uh, Bernard uh, Rennam, off the tackle out of Central Michigan. Number eight is Tyler Smith, off the tackle out of Tulsa. Number nine is Rasheed Walker, off the tackle out of Penn State. Number 10 is Kenyon Green, off the tackle. Slash, uh, interior offensive lineman out of uh, Texas A&M. Number 11 is uh, Nicholas Piet Ferreira. Off the tackle out of Ohio State. Number 12 is Zion Johnson. uh, Interior offensive lineman out of Boston College. Number 13 is Luke uh, Gadaki. Off the tackle out of Central Michigan. Number 14 is Darian Kennard. Off the tackle out of Kentucky. Number 15 is Alec Lindenstorm. uh, Interior offensive lineman out of Boston College. Number 16 is Sean Ryan. Interior offensive lineman out of UCLA. Number 17 is Abraham Lucas, off the tackle out of Washington State. Number 18 is Chris Paul, off the tackle out of Tulsa. Number 19 is Jeremiah Slayer, interior offensive lineman out of Georgia. Number 20 is Dylan Parham, interior offensive lineman out of Memphis. Number 21 is Thayer Munford, interior offensive lineman out of Ohio State. Number 22 is Ed Ingram, interior offensive lineman out of LSU. Number 23 is Myron Cunningham, off the tackle out of Arkansas. 24 is Luke Fortner. Interior offensive lineman out of Kentucky. Number 25 is Justin Schaefer. Interior offensive lineman out of Georgia. And number 26 is Andrew Stieber. Off to tackle out of Michigan. So, just first, I'll start with my first six guys. Uh, first of all, Evan Neal is my number one offensive lineman in this class. He is the number one player overall in this draft for me. I have him ahead of Aiden Hutchinson, Kayvon Thibodeau, two of the edges that have gotten a lot of hype in this draft. Also, uh, Akeem Aquanu, my uh, number two. Offensive lineman, I have him ahead of him as well. Evan Neal is absolutely dominant. I just want to give some words about Neal. So, Neal is not only the most dominant player in this draft class, but he's the most dominant player overall, regardless of position, like I said. Uh, Neal has a combination of rare strength and power at the point of attack. He regularly pancaked SEC athletes, and not only that, uh, Division I college football athletes put him on the ground. Uh, Damarin Neal... Uh, is going to be like a top 60 pick or whatever out of Texas a and Put his butt on the ground multiple different times. Uh, I never saw him lose a matchup, particularly in the running game. Guys were always on the ground. It's like, my gosh, this dude must be unreal strong. Uh, only three things happened when I saw Neil in the running game. Uh, either Neil put someone on the ground, right? That was the worst thing. He just pushed the guy out of the play completely or it was a stalemate at the line of scrimmage and nothing happened. P.S. folks, there weren't a lot of stalemates, which is insane. Uh, this former Bama star is also a great pass blocker as well. He doesn't give up a lot of ground to pass rushers and he moves his feet well against speed rushers. He has length. I believe he has three, four inch arms. So more than enough to push these ends to the outside against the speed rush. Uh, just a special athlete, six, seven. Also, uh, Slimmed down for the combine, looked really good, and then looked like he's in really good shape. And at first, that was concern for me about his weight, but it looks like he has that under control. So I'm like, this dude's ready to go right away. He's going to be one of the best players in the game, I think. I think he's a can't-miss prospect, Evan Neal. Number two is Akeem Aquanu off to tackle NC State. Uh, he is the best pure pass blocker in this draft class. He's a better pure pass blocker than Neal. Uh, slightly more athletic, more nimble than Neil. Uh, he has amazing get off into his kick slide. He does it effortlessly and smoothly uh just very natural he's great at moving both his hands and feet at the same time just a very coordinated twitchy athlete in addition he mirrors pass rushers very well they go inside he's right there they go to the outside he's right there they do a spin move uh swim like he's very good at moving with them and mirroring their actions like i said twitchy quick has great hips in the run game he's very good at getting out in space he can get to blockers on the next he can get to linebackers on the next level uh very good. Also, you can use him in the screen game as well. I'm pretty sure with this feet, you can use him as a puller. Uh, probably not the one-on-one drive blocker in Evan Neal is the physical specimen, the physical dominating man that an Evan Neal is, but still very, very good. And while I do have Neal as my number one uh, overall prospect, Akeem isn't far behind. There are some things that he does better than Neil, particularly in the passing game, and this is a passing league. I just think what Neil does, what gives the edge over Neil for me is just his dominance, and I saw it against the higher level of competition, SEC to ACC, but Akeem is special as well. Both these guys, I, I see these guys being pro bowlers, all pros. I would be shocked if they were busts in this league. Then we get the Tyler Lindenbaum, center out of Iowa. He's another guy who, if he's a bust, I would be shocked. Top 10 overall player. On my board, regardless of position, Linderbaum, he might be the safest player in this draft. He has no weaknesses in his game. The former Hawkeye, he's twitchy, strong, and explosive athlete at the center position. He slides his feet well in pass protection. He can handle big defensive tackles, big nose tackles uh, one-on-one in both the passing game in terms of not giving up ground and anchoring so his quarterback can have space to step up and throw in the pocket and in the run game, pushing them back so his running backs have room to run. Uh, amazing in the run game. In the run game, like I said, he can drive block, reach block, gets to the second level. Leader of the offensive line, just a special athlete and a special specimen at the center position. And I think he's going to be one of the best centers in football. Look for him to be a Pro Bowl, All Pro type of guy for years to come. My top three off to London are very special. Then we get to guys that there might be some work. So next for Charles Cross, off the tackle at a Mississippi State. Uh, I would say this about Charles Cross. He has the arm length. I believe he has like 35 inch arms. Uh, don't be surprised if he becomes a franchise tackle, uh, there's a lot to love about his game and pass blocking. He does a great job of writing defensive ends out because his arms are so long. So even when he gets beat and they get a step on him, he can kind of ride them out and push them out to the edge while his quarterback can then step up and make throws in the pocket. Uh, he also showed the versatility in the run game, the ability to be a good backside blocker uh, when they're running away from the play to keep guys from getting into the play, right? Also, he uh, did a good job of blocking in space, and he pulled very well. And he did this against SEC teams. He played in the SEC West, no less, where Mississippi State is. So he's seeing Alabama defenses, LSU defenses, Texas A&M defenses. Uh, so he's battle-tested as well there. Number five for me is Trevor Penning off the tackle out of the University of Northern Iowa. This is a division, uh, a double-A football player. So the FCS level of college football uh, the first thing that stands out about Penning is he's physical. Also, say this: borderline dirty. Uh, he's a guy that probably does a little bit too much pushing after the whistles, like, the whistle's up, the whistle's over, and then he just decides, let me just crack back a guy, a linebacker, a safety, a defensive lineman. So, a little dirty, but I think people like that nastiness on guys on the offensive line, like right, like a junkyard dog, like just somebody you don't want to mess with. as a little bit of a mean streak. My one concern is, it's very easy to be mean when you're playing at a lower level of football, and you're always bigger and stronger and faster than everybody, but it's like when you're in Division 1, where the big boys are, the SEC, where the big boys are, and then even goes higher level in uh the nfl it's like when you can't just necessarily just move men other men against their will like they're just children right uh how does that nastiness how does all that materialize that's something i'd be very curious to see because he's the bully on the block But it's kind of like when you think you're the big bully in middle school, then you go to high school. It's like, oh, I'm not that big anymore. That's my one concern with Trevor Penning. But besides that, I love everything about his game In the run game. He does not stop blocking. He will not stop blocking. After he pancakes somebody, he's looking for somebody else to put his hands on. Uh, He's going to be a real big asset in the run game that way. Also, very athletic can get out in space, can block linebackers. Uh, very solid feet when it comes to pass protection. Doesn't give up a lot of ground. He can anchor well against power rushers. So I think he'll be a very solid right tackle in the NFL. Uh, then we get to number six, the last of my off to who I have first-round grades on, Daniel Fele, off the tackle out of Minnesota. So first of all, Fele is a massive human being, standing at 6'9", 380 pounds. Folks, that's a big man. Uh, with his size, uh, it's extremely difficult for pass rushers to get around him. He has the arm length. He has the size the build. Like Even if they're quicker than him, he still has very good feet, by the way. Uh, he's just a massive man to get under and then just fully get around, especially when he's athletic enough to semi-keep pace with these pass rushers. <laughs> Uh, just a lot of man to get around in the run game not as dominant as I would like but when he turns it on he just puts people on their butt kind of Evan Neal like a bigger man than Evan Neal and stronger man than Evan Neal Uh, the raw power and strength are impressive this is more of a projection but there's enough that I saw that I'm like okay we can pit him in the first round and with all this talent ability it's like if it all clicks he's gonna be an all pro like if it all clicks like he can be as good as Evan Neal and eek him, like, my, my first two guys, like, he could be the best guy in this class, in terms of the offensive lineman, that's how special he is, you don't see many men in this world who are 6'9", 380 pounds, who are nimble, quick on their feet, have good hips, all these things that he's shown the ability to do to move out of space, I'm like, how the hell is he so comfortable moving out of space, also, another concern for me is his weight, what type of guy is he, is he a guy who's going to be eating chicken nuggets at McDonald's at Burger King at Wendy's, I don't want a body shame, but... He has the type of body. He's always going to have to watch what he eats, what he puts into his body, how he trains. If he doesn't, he's going to be fat. He's going to be out of the league. He's going to eat himself out of the league. Just like how Eddie Lacy, former running back from Alabama who got drafted by the Packers, put himself out of the league because he couldn't stop eating cupcakes. That happens to people. Uh, then we get to the other guys that I like in this class. Uh, Bernard uh, Raymond, uh, off to tackle out of Central Michigan. I just almost had him as a first-rounder. Uh, He's a guy that I worry about his feet a little bit, very good run blocker, strong, can pull, can get to the second level. I see him really being a guy who could end up being a Pro Bowl guard, though he played a lot of tackle at Michigan, so that shows you has versatility. Tyler Smith, off the tackle out of Tulsa. Another guy who has an offensive tackle, has the anchor, has the power, can handle uh, the bull rush, also has quick enough feet and long enough arms where... He can move uh, out in space with some of these pass, record, pass rushers and push them out and let his QB step in the pocket. I didn't see that as consistently as I would have liked, and he was at a lower level of competition. The number nine, Rashid Walker, another massive man. He's like 6'6", 340. Again, hard to get around. There's some moments when you watch him, like, this dude is dominant. He can be very special, and there's other moments when you're like, oh, uh, this is just sloppy. Uh, so he's another guy. Then you have Kenyon Green. Off to to tackle slash interior off to lineman out of A&M. He's a guy that's versatile. He can do it all. He looked a lot better at tackle to me than guard. When I saw him play, which is weird because I think a lot of people are in these draft sites and whatnot. I think the NFL right now, they're looking at him as a guard. He also has very long arms. If he does not have playing guard, 34-inch arms, that's very long for a guard. You don't typically see it. That's more of like tackle range. Uh, But when you look at him, he he played a lot better at tackle than guard, which I was really shocked when I broke down the film. Uh, But good athlete. Uh, I would just like to see a little more power in his game, but he's somebody that can definitely show versatility on the line, and that's going to be a value because even if he's a backup his first year, Somebody gets hurt, he's like, okay, we can swing him to guard, have our guard switch out the tackle. Or we can have, put him at tackle and switch our tackle to guard because our guard got hurt, right? So he has that type of versatility. Uh, then at number 11, Nicholas Biet, uh, Pierre, off the tackle out of Ohio State. I really liked him. Uh, athletic, powerful, has the anchor. Uh, I just saw too many inconsistencies in his game. Uh I would have liked to see more, but he's another guy that uh, I'm fairly high on. And as you can see, we're like 11, 12 deep, and I'm still talking about offensive linemen that I'm high on. I think I have a lot of potential, which shows you through round one, two, and probably three, there are a lot of good, talented offensive linemen, even some developmental guys that might be backups, like I said, like a Kenyon Green that can come in and give you some production that uh, are special that way. So this is a deep offensive line class. If your team needs offensive linemen, like as I'm naming these guys, like write them down. Like uh, this is a draft for offensive linemen. Also Zion Johnson, interior offensive lineman out of Boston College. He's a guy who's played tackle as well as guard. He has very long arms. He's a very smart football player. He can pull. He can get out to the second level. He can do a lot of things that way. He can slide his feet fairly well in pass protection. Uh, Darren Kinnard out of off out of Kentucky. I thought he was a tad overrated. I didn't see the power and the ability to anchor in his game, but he has very good feet can move very well in space, so he's an athlete. So maybe what you do is you have more of his own blocking scheme where you can have him in uh, where he's getting to the second level and maybe put him to guard or something like that, but he's a guy that has a lot of talent that I noticed. Uh, Luke uh, Gadaki, off the tackle out of Central Michigan, uh, would like to see better feet, but he has the power. He has the nastiness in the run game again, playing the Macs for the competition. Or are always like, "Uh, I don't know. When I see guys like just knocking dude and pancaking guys over, the Mac it's like, well... It's the Mac. The Mac is known for elite uh, college football talent. But still, uh, somebody that you look at and you're like, okay, he can be a player maybe, potentially. Uh, Sean Ryan, uh, interior offensive lineman at UCLA. He has experience playing both tackle and guard. Very good feet. Very athletic. Uh, there are concerns. There are a lot of power concerns. I don't know if he's strong enough. That would be a real concern for me once we start getting down to him. Uh... Alec Lindstrom, interior offensive lineman out of Boston College played center also can play guard. Big man anchors well uh holds his ground in the run game. I could see him just being your typical average starting guard for a decade that, you know, you don't have to worry about. And this is again, Alec Lindstrom, he is my fifteenth offensive lineman. So we're already at fifteen. So that's what I mean when I say in the first round, second round, and third round. There are guys who can be had in this class. Uh then you get to other guys, and I'll look around here. Who else do I have that I think can be good? Abraham Lucas, offensive out of Washington State. He has the body. I don't see the power. But again, he could be a developmental guy. The same with Chris Paul. He has the twitchiness, he has the burst. Uh, just a lot of inconsistencies. Uh, Jamie Slayer, interior offensive line out of Georgia. He's a bully in the run game. I have uh, worries about his uh, ability in pass protection. So, all in all, when you look at this class, right? I looked at about how many 26 guys Uh, I just named like 18 to 20 kind of went into what they do. Uh, Like I said, first round, second round, third round. There are a lot of guys in this class Uh, and I love the offensive line. I played that position when I played football and modified tenth and 8th grade JV 9th and 10th and varsity 11th and 12th so I love the offensive line I play tackle and guard so I'd like to think I know a little bit about this position but there are guys particularly the top three Lindenbaum Akeem and Evan Neil, uh those guys for sure in my opinion will be pro bowl to all pro guys uh, and we'll be starters and contributors on the O-line right away and we see how important the O-line is What's the most important position in the NFL? It is the QB. Who's protects the QB? The offensive line, right? To use chess terms, the QB is the king, right? The quarterback in the NFL is the king. What happens in chess? the king goes down, the game is over, right? If your QB gets hurt, you have a league average, or excuse me, below league average, below starter level QB, like a Sam Darnold for the Panthers where he's throwing four picks a game, or Nathan Peterman for the Buffalo Bills, and God knows, the Buffalo Bills fan, I know how atrocious Nathan Peterman was. You can't win in this league, so you need your offensive line to protect your QB in the passing game. Also, you know how else you protect the QB? Uh, Complementary football, being able to run the ball, make sure it's not always a third and long when pass rushers can tee off on the QB. Where you can have a third and manageable, third and three, third and one, where it can make it easier reads, easier throws for your quarterback <laughs> off the line. They help with that as well. So this is an extremely important position. If you're able to build up an offensive line, you can have a really great offense, and you can have the ability to help your defense because if you can run the ball with your offensive line, uh, to make it easier for the running back, you can keep a bad defense off the field. So the offensive line, extremely important. The big guys, the fat guys, quote. Quote, don't get a lot of love, but they are special humans, and I guarantee the QBs appreciate them, because that's why when they help them out, the QBs, they go pay for the dinner, the off the line dinner, and guess what, uh, they lose a lot of money, but the QBs make a lot of money too, so it uh, works out all fine and dandy, so cut up next after the break on Barbershop Sports Talk, we're going to have Nathan on, cut up next after the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. With barbershop sports talk, and we have Nathan Swaffer on with us again, sports editor for the Kansian, the Kansas Jayhawks student newspaper. How you doing, man? I'll be honest. I'm pretty tired.
1: It's been a long last few. Been a long last week, but I can't can't complain. I'm pretty happy. That KU actually managed to win the national championship.
0: So just let's start with that. For that experience, you got a chance to go down there to New Orleans kind of what were your responsibilities and just overall what type of experience it was for you? Well,
1: I'll tell you, it, it was a lot of fun, you know, going down to New Orleans for the final four national championship, you know, um, my primary responsibilities were more just keeping up with coverage, um, in terms of, you know, what Katie was doing, you know, previews for final four against Villanova, same thing with North Carolina, you know, uh, up to, up to date game coverage, you know, doing social media stuff. We were doing a lot of socials, not only for the Kansas, but a lot of our J school entities that were down there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was a blast being able to watch three really good games: um, KU, Villanova, obviously Duke, and North Carolina. Probably one of the best Final Four games we've had in a long time, and then one of the best national championships we've had in probably the last decade between KU and North Carolina. Watching that. Fifteen-point halftime deficit comeback from KU. It was, it was a blast. And New Orleans was fun as well. I was able to, you know, have some time to myself, be able to go see the city. So it was, it was a real fun experience.
0: Where did you get to sit during the games?
1: So I actually sat in two different places. Um, I was lucky enough to be courtside um, for KU and Villanova. That was, that, that was so fun. We were, I was right behind. You know, Jim Nance, Grant Hill, Bill Raftery, uh, broadcasting for TBS. Um, so I was there for the first game. Unfortunately, for the second game, I was moved to the rest of the media seating, which was not not bad by any means. It was it was in the end zone, which is, eh, I mean, maybe a few hundred feet away from one of the baskets, but I still had a really nice view I was still able to watch the game pretty clearly. Obviously, would have rather been courtside, but. I can't complain because it was it was really nice. I mean, just just being able to be down there as a student is something I'll never forget and will always be grateful for. Even even though I didn't get to sit courts after the championship game, it's just about appreciating what I was able to do down there.
0: So for the championship game, you were uh, in the uh, you were where you were for the second game, the Duke game, Duke UNC game.
1: Oh, um. I was I was in the end zone for that one as well. They actually uh, had to move some stuff around between the two games because some of the organizations, um, especially like Kansas specific, were down at uh, courtside for the, K, the KU game. But then they were moved up into the end zone for the Duke North Carolina game because some of those local um, newspapers and websites were down there who were who had reported on North Carolina Duke all season. So, I was up in the end zone for the second game, but, man, I, I don't think it really would have mattered where you were just to be in the Superdome for such a historic game between you know, North Carolina and Duke Coach K's last game. It was it, it was pretty spectacular that I can tell people, yeah, I was there.
0: So, I don't know how many like crazy sporting venues you've been to, but where does this rank... Right, in terms of you, in terms of just like sports venues, you've got to participate in not even participate that you've gotten just to be in there in person and watch and be like, okay, as opposed to an NFL game, I don't know, an NBA game, Major League Baseball, like, where does this all rank for you? Uh,
1: this has to be number one right now. I mean, I, I you know, I was in the United Center, um, for the Sweet 16 Elite Eight, and the United Center is an incredible venue, and it couldn't even hold handles, the Superdome. You know, it is. I remember. You know, when I was coming to New Orleans, I'm like, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty big. It's pretty impressive from the outside. I then I actually walked down there and was just looking up at it from the outside. I'm like, man, this is a lot bigger than I thought it was. And then actually being inside the Superdome, it's it, it's pretty incredible because it's such a big venue. I mean, you can look straight up and you can't see the ceiling. And the atmosphere when that place was full for the Final Four national championship was it, it was it was pretty impressive and pretty breathtaking. It's it's probably number one on my list right now, and you know that's that's coming from a guy who's been to Allen Fieldhouse, um, who knows how many times now um, Arrowhead Stadium, Kauffman Stadium in Kansas City. You know, it's it, it's up there. It, it's pretty incredible how. How, how just, yeah, how incredible it was.
0: So, first game, Kansas-Villanova. How shocked were you with how kind of thoroughly the Jayhawks dominated Nova?
1: You know, I can't say that I was incredibly shocked. I was surprised. Um, but at the same time, the, the cards were stacked against Villanova coming into that game you know, they were already really thin with their rotation, and then the injury to Justin Moore in their Elite Eight game against Houston, you know, just made them that much more vulnerable. And KU got, just, just jumped out to an incredible start. I mean, a lot of people compared it to what Villanova did to KU in 2018. It wasn't quite that severe, but you could just kind of tell from the jump that KU was on their game. And even when Villanova, I think they got it to within six um, with like 10 minutes left in the second half, it never really felt that close. It just felt that KU had complete control of that game nearly the entire time. And t- coming into that game, you know, KU was playing the best basketball they had all season. So I can't say I was exactly surprised. And KU matched up so well with Villanova because Villanova had struggled against teams that were bigger than them size wise. And You know, especially with the David McCormick or Dixon matchup, there was no way Dixon was going to be able to stop McCormick, especially once he got going early in the game. McCormick finished with 25 points and I think nine rebounds. He had one of the best games of his career on the the biggest stage. So it's uh, it's pretty incredible what they were able to do in that game. Um, And they just kind of continued that momentum
0: into North Carolina. So, you also mentioned, right, you get to watch UNC-Duke, which ended up being the much better game. I mean, the historic game. Uh, that, that should have been the last game. <laughs> so much on the line. The first time both those programs have ever met in the Final Four. Obviously, maybe the biggest rivalry in college sports, level alone college basketball. What was that like, watching that game for you? Um, you
1: could tell you were witnessing history. Um, you know, it'd be one thing to just watch a North Carolina Duke game, you know, at Chapel Hill or in Indoor, but to, to watch that in the Final Four, knowing that you know this could be Coach K's last game, it was pretty, pretty surreal to think that you know, wow, I'm I'm actually sitting here watching this game in real time, I'm not watching it on TV or, you know, watching it from, you know, the very top of the arena. You know, I'm sitting not that far from the court watching history. And, I mean, was, there, there was really no way to explain what I was witnessing as I was watching it because it was such an incredible game down the stretch. It, it feels
0: so incredibly cool that I could tell people yeah, I was there. I witnessed that in person. Who did you think was going to win that game going in?
1: Oh, I thought for sure Duke was going to win it. Um, <laughs> I was. I, I, I knew North Carolina was going to be in that game, but I remember I told you know some of my some media colleagues of mine, North Carolina is going to have to play one of their best games of the season if they want any chance of winning this game because Duke. Duke like KU was playing their best best basketball of the season and they were really starting to put it all together and I just I remember I, I really thought Duke was going to pull away because they I think they got up by six with maybe eight or nine minutes left and I'm thinking to myself, oh that's it North Carolina has, has run out of gas and Duke's just going to start taking this over but man, I mean, North Carolina balled out in that game, it was pretty incredible uh, you know, everybody looks at you know, what R.J. Davis, Brady manic Caleb Love did in that game. But, you know, I looked at Armando Paycott, who, even though he only finished, I think, with 11 points, he had 21 rebounds, which was absolutely incredible. And I was pretty surprised that North Carolina was able to pull that one out. But, I mean, my goodness, if they didn't, they had just an incredible season. Being able to say, not only did we beat Coach K
0: in his last home game, We ended Coach K's career completely. How sad was it that it kind of ended that way for Coach K? You know,
1: to put my personal feelings aside from Coach K and just look at it as a college basketball fan, it's disappointing but also not. Because it's disappointing in the sense that, well, you know, one of the best coaches, possibly the best college basketball coach ever, couldn't end it the way he wanted to with a national championship with an incredible group of players. But at the same time, to see that team, especially with what they've gone through all season, even manage to get that far is pretty incredible. Because, you know, I'm not even sure they should have been a two seed. Coming into the tournament, you could have made an argument to have them as a three and maybe, you know, not even make it past the round of 32. And for them to be able to put it all together – and be able to get to the final four and just a few seconds away from at least a national championship trip is is pretty incredible and i think had they made the national championship they probably would have won um, i think Duke matches up pretty well with KU uh, but you know looking at it as a pure college basketball fan there are there's are some things about it that you know make you feel a bit disappointed but at the same time you also look at it just like, well, it's pretty incredible that he was even able to make it this far with this squad. And I think yeah, you have to look at it from that sense and say that's that's pretty incredible that he even made it that far.
0: Where do you think Coach K ranks in terms of college basketball coaches? Just curious your thoughts on that.
1: I think I'd have to put him at two. I still think he's behind John Wooden. I don't think anybody can deny how incredible John Wooden was, but you know, if you were to look at a Mount Rushmore of college basketball coaches, I mean, he's up there. You know, it, it, if I if I had to say who'd be on my Mount Rushmore, it'd probably be John Wooden, Coach K, Dean Smith, and probably Fog Allen. Um, you know, four incredible coaches who revolutionized the game of college basketball. But I mean, Coach K, Coach K, in my opinion, is probably the second best college basketball coach ever. And I think he could make the argument that he's the best. But I'd, I'd have to give John Wooden
0: the slight edge. Because of the sheer volume of championships. I mean, that's always... <laughs> How many does he have? I mean, like, 10, 11? How many does he have? I
1: think, yeah, I think he has 11. When you have 11 national championships, it's kind of hard to beat that.
0: Yeah. I mean, different era, too. I mean, that's when you have to get in the whole semantics argument. But when you have that many rings, it's, it's kind of tough to argue, were you actually better? But, uh... Yeah. Coach K, I mean, obviously, just a really special career. Uh, and it was something I just found interesting was the fact that during that Final Four game, he's sitting down the whole time. And I'm like, yeah, this dude's not coming back. Because <laughs> yeah. you see uh, the other coaches, you know, they're standing up the whole time. He has the chair out because, you know, this is a big arena. They're all kind of down in that lower deck area. And he's like on, on, the, little stu- on the little stool. And I'm like, yep, yeah. his knees are probably killing him.
1: Yeah, you know, you look at the, look at him compared to what Bill Self and Hubert Davis were in the championship game. I mean, my goodness, those two were running around all over the place, and, you know, were just, you you could tell it it was probably
0: it. So, did Duke lose the game, or did UNC win it? What do you think is more accurate? North, North Carolina won it. Um
1: you can't take any anything away from North Carolina in that game. They, like like I said before, they had to play a near perfect game to win, and they did. I don't think it was anything that Duke Duke lost that game. I don't think it was you know like they, they choked it away or anything like that. No, I think I think North Carolina just played about as good as you could have against Duke. I mean, you, you have to give credit to that entire starting five. That they were able to pull that out. And, you know, like I said, I give credit to Armando Baycott. Dude played through a bum ankle, who, you know, a lot of people said, yeah, he's done for the game, came back in and still had a large impact. So, Duke, Duke didn't lose that game. North Carolina rightfully won it.
0: So, just explain to me now what's the atmosphere like for the national championship game, Kansas versus UNC, and what were your thoughts going into that game?
1: Covering KU all season, I thought this was this was a really favorable matchup for KU. They have they've done really well against teams with thin depth, which North Carolina very much had. You know, they essentially had their starting five and Puff Johnson, and then that feels like it's about it. Um, yeah, but
0: and sometimes it's not even Puff Johnson.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean he he showed up against KU, which was big for North Carolina. He had them in that game, but. You know, going into that matchup, it it was favorable for KU, and KU was still playing really good. I mean, obviously, Ochai Apaji and David McCormick had just played some of the best games of the season against Villanova. So coming to that game, it it felt like KU was going to be able to do it. And then, you know, they got down 15 at halftime. um, And a lot of people thought it was over. But I remember saying to a colleague, um, if KU can get this down to single digits within five minutes, they have a real shot because that team has found ways to win games. And then <laughs> seven minutes in, they've already regained the lead. So they they, they were able to put it all together, and they were, they were able to withhold North Carolina down the stretch as well. I mean, you know, North Carolina put themselves up with about a minute 30 left, but they were still able to overcome that. It was pretty incredible
0: how KU managed to come back in that game. So – I want to know just your reaction when UNC gets out of that big lead. What are you thinking? Are you like, oh, this is what I expected? No, it
1: definitely wasn't. I mean, I remember as I was sitting with my colleagues watching that unfold, we were, we were all just saying, man, this is the worst KU has looked probably since they played TCU. Um their third-to-last game of the regular season. It was pretty incredible how poor they were playing because they couldn't do anything on the defensive end. But it was so surprising on the offensive end to just see them look so sloppy. Um, We hadn't seen them that sloppy in just about a month and a half. So it was pretty surprising to just see them not be able to really find any type of offensive rhythm. I think they scored three points in like the last six minutes, um, and it was... It just looked awful out there. And, you know, that, that that's kind of, they they tended to do that this season and then come back from it. So I think that's kind of why a lot of people were thinking, well, you know, as bad as that is, it's not over yet. Because KU has found ways to win games that they have no business winning.
0: Why do you think KU was so slow to start that game? What do you think that was?
1: Well, they weren't even slow to start the game. I mean, they got out to a seven-zero lead. And it kind we started getting, you know, flashbacks from the previous game where they got out on Villanova quick, um, and even up until you know the, you know, like the seventh or eighth minute, they were still they were still right there. They were both neck and neck, and then then it all went downhill, and it was it was surprising to just see them not be able to find any type of groove. But, I mean, my goodness, when Brady hit his back-to-back threes to put Nova up by six, it kind of felt like something was off Um, because the defense looked really sloppy on those two possessions and the offense was just non-existent, seemingly. And so that, that was very surprising to see that happen and to see KU essentially just stagnate. For the last six minutes of a half, and just not be able to find anything, any type of momentum, any type of offensive or defensive consistency, and it was it was so unusual um, to see them play that poorly. But I must say, I I can't say I was incredibly not surprised that they came back in the second half because you know, like you said, they they find ways to win games that they shouldn't even be in.
0: Where do you think that comes from when they're able to find ways to kind of dig in deep and win these games? It's like, okay, they should be getting blown out, but they just kind of hang around and stay in the fight. Well, I think that's partly because Kate's battle
1: tested and they're experienced. I mean, unlike, you know, like the Dukes and Kentuckys, um, they, they didn't have really that all American freshman wanted done. Um, you know, they had a group of experienced guys who had been in these situations before. I mean, Ocheb Adjik, Sr., David McCormick, Sr., Christian Brown, Jr., Remy Martin, you know, sixth-year senior, Mitch Lightfoot, sixty year senior, Jalen Wilson, Jr. I mean, all these guys had seen this before, and, you know, it was interesting. In the post-game press conference, um, they talked about how David McCormick came into the locker room smiling at everybody, and Christian Brown you know, was like, what you smiling for, McCormick? Like, hey, we've been here before. We can do this. Um, obviously, Brown was like, I don't think I've been here before. 15 down in the national championship game. But the, they were able to essentially just get past that and move on because they've seen this before. Maybe not in this type of situation in a national championship. But, I mean, they were down 17 and a half against K-State this season. And they were able to erase that deficit and win that game. So they had been there before as much as, you know, they say they had. They had. they have They've been in that type of situation where it's like, okay, we're not playing well. You know, we're down big at half, but we are not out of this game. And I think that mentality of we're not out of it has really kind of been that type of somewhat mindset that they had all season was that it's never over.
0: So you don't think there was a lack of confidence at all going into halftime? Like, they're like, well, we have them right where we want them, basically.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe a little bit. I mean, you could tell they, they were struggling. They, You know, they just they couldn't find any type of consistency. And I think their confidence was off, for sure. But I think, you know, they kind of set the tone at the beginning of the second half on both ends, I mean, Dewan Harris, who has been labeled as the best defensive player for KU, you know, guys were talking after the game about how he really sparked that comeback because he was forcing turnovers against North Carolina on the other end, and he was just being a defensive menace to them, and then that leads to offense on the other end. I mean, David McCormick set the tone on offense at the beginning of the half with just a monster dunk, and so... Maybe they didn't have him right where they wanted him, but I think they had him right where they wanted him after the first few possessions of the second half, and that was kind of when, like, everybody started thinking, you know, we're coming back, we're going to win this thing.
0: So I want to go towards the end of the game. Uh, When Kansas, that out-of-bounds play, Mm -hmm. when they go out-of-bounds, what are you thinking when that happens?
1: (laughs) You you know, it's interesting because a lot of people ask me, were you worried? You know, where you're thinking, oh my gosh, you know, DeJuan Harris is going to become the next Chris Webber, you know, like calling a timeout when they don't have it, and, you know. no, Chris that
0: to Chris me, said. that wasn't that bad because there was pressure. I, I could, I mean, it was a mistake, but it's not as egregious as Chris Webber.
1: Yeah, well, and, you know, a lot of people ask me, were you worried when that happened? And I wasn't. And I really wasn't at all because I'm like, well, nah, North Carolina's going to miss this and KU's going to win just from what had happened in the second half, because North Carolina had actually shot very poorly uh, that entire game. They were struggling from three-point, you know, even just making some simple shots, they were struggling. And it just it kind of felt like they didn't have it near the end of that game. And, you know, credit to KU. They played incredible defense off that out-of-bounds set. I and mean, Christian Brown was just glued to Caleb Love. And so it you know, Bill Self, maybe maybe one of the best coaches ever coming out of timeouts on the offensive and defensive end, and he showed it again. And so no, I can't say that I was worried. I can't say that I was like, oh man, North Carolina's gonna tie this up here. I mean, it was just kinda it kind of felt like, nope, it's not gonna happen, and Katie's gonna win this game.
0: So what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a quick break. And then cut up next to the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. We're going to talk some more Kansas basketball. Cut up next to the break on um, Barbershop Sports Talk. Oh,
1: Father, tell me, do we get what we deserve? Oh, we get what we deserve. And wait. We-
0: With Sports Talk. We still have Nathan Swaffer with us. So, Nathan, where does this Kansas team rank for you? Let's say the last decade or so, the Bills up air in terms of other Kansas teams. What type of place does this team hold?
1: Well, you know, in terms of just pure success, they're number one. I mean, nobody in the last decade has been able to win a national championship, but... You know, when you look at it talent-wise, you know, I can't say that I can't say that they're probably, they're definitely not number one, and I bet they're not even number two, because when you look at some of those Bill Self teams in the last decade, you know, those, you know, the 20, between 2016 um, and 20, 2017, 2020, those were some incredibly talented teams. I think 2020, um, you know, when the, when, the tournament got canceled. I think that was Bill Self's second-best team ever, right behind the 2007-2008 National Championship team. Um, but in terms of pure success in the last decade, I mean, this this team's number one. I mean, to be able to win the Big 12 regular season title, the Big 12 postseason title, and the National Championship all in the same year is so
0: incredibly difficult to do. And so, I mean, this... This will probably be Bill Self's second
1: most memorable team behind the 2018. But I don't think they'll go down as the most talented. But they'll probably be, you know, they'll be up there and they'll be remembered, especially for the likes of Baji, who, you know, can this All-American. Um, they'll be, they'll mostly be remembered for what he did this season. But, I mean, this this will be remembered as an incredible team effort. It wasn't just one guy. It was everybody.
0: How do you think this team compares to that 7 08 team that you're talking about?
1: Uh, they're not as good. Um, that 07-08 that team is special. I, In terms of watching KU teams, I'm not sure I've ever seen a more balanced team on the offensive and defensive end. That is probably Bill Self's best defensive team, and I'd argue that's one of the best defensive teams ever in college basketball history. I mean, when you've got guys like Mario Chalmers and Russell Robinson, you know, Sharon Collins, Darrell Arthur, Darnell Jackson, when you've got guys like that on the same defensive squad, that is – it's so hard to score on them. And I I can't remember – how good their defensive efficiency was off the top of my head. But I, I remember i I've won. A, it was definitely top five that season. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll be honest. If if that 7 08 team faced this
0: 2022 team, I'm not convinced it would be close. Oh, really? If you think they the, blow them out? Oh, I think so. Because the 0708
1: team was just so balanced on both ends of the court. Now, I will say this 2022 team – Got a lot better defensively um, down the stretch of the season, especially into the tournament. That, you know, maybe would make that game a little closer, but that, that 07 08 team, in my opinion, is probably one of the best college basketball teams of the last 20 to 30 years.
0: Where do you think then that 07 08 team ranks? Just like, let's say since that, that's been like 15, 14 years. Where do you think that ranks among other College basketball champions like other teams. I think they're up there. Um,
1: You know, I'm trying to think the best teams of the last, you know, 20
0: years. What comes to to mind is like the AD team that in Kentucky. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I I go to the AD Kentucky team. I go to the 2018 Villanova team. I go to the 0708 Jayhawks, the um, 0607 Florida Gators. That was an incredible team as well. I mean, I think they're up there. I think they're top five in the last twenty to thirty years, and I think you can make an argument for it. But you know, another one that I pick out is you know Carmelo Anthony, Syracuse Orange. That team was incredible as well. Funny enough, they beat Kansas and what was perhaps Roy Williams, you know, second or third best team um, that somehow wasn't able to win a championship. But I mean, they're they're right up there. That was an incredible squad. And really, that entire year of college basketball, you have some just incredible teams. And, you know, going into that tournament, they weren't even the number one seed. That North Carolina team that they faced in the Final Four was so incredibly good. I mean, to, to this day, that's still the only Final Four of all four number one seeds made it out of their regions. And rightfully so, because that, that was those were some of the most talented teams we've ever seen. You know, with Russell Westbrook and Kevin Love on UCLA. Derrick Rose on Memphis, obviously. First, Brandon Rush on KU. And Tyler Hansborough on North Carolina. That that college basketball season saw some of the most talented teams we've ever seen. And I think that speaks volumes to how good that 7 08, KU team really was.
0: What does Bill Self mean to Kansas?
1: Hmm... You know that's a good question because the the question of what is Bill Self's legacy at Kansas now has come up a lot in the past, you know, five six days. You know, with this second national championship, I think Bill Self has separated him from almost every other coach at KU. I still don't think he's better coached than Fog Allen because I mean Fog Allen is the father of college basketball, and so I don't think he'll ever eclipse Fog Allen.
0: But, and when you say uh, father of college basketball, explain to that what you mean by that.
1: Fog Allen essentially was the guy who made college basketball mainstream. I mean, he was uh, he was essentially the original college basketball coach. I mean, he advocated for college basketball and really basketball itself to become mainstream because you know he worked hand in hand with James Naismith, the inventor of basketball, when he was at KU and he really revolutionized coaching um, up you know from the 20s up to the 50s when he was coaching and I think a lot of people still look at Fog Allen as the guy who made college basketball what it would become and he's he really is what a lot of people call the father of college basketball because he revolutionized the game and you know helped that pathway I mean you, you look at some of the guys who have come off of him. Um, he coached Adolph Rupp, who went on to become an unbelievable coach at Kentucky. He coached Dean Smith when he played at KU. You know, a lot of people call it North Carolina. You know, North Carolina basketball was invented in Lawrence, Kansas, because that's where Dean Smith came from. Obviously, Roy Williams coached at KU. And so Fog Allen's fingerprints are literally everywhere in college basketball. But when you look at, he, he's still above Bill Self. And I don't think anybody will ever surpass Fogg Allen in terms of success in Kansas. You know, maybe maybe the not championships. I mean, Bill Self has, actually. Bill Self's the only Kansas coach ever to win two national championships, or at least two, two NCAA championships. Fog Allen won three, but two of those were before the NCAA was formed. But, you know, Bill Self, in my opinion, cemented his Kansas legacy. He kind of got past that narrative that his teams couldn't get it done when it mattered most. And I think he kind of threw those down the drain. And so I think what Bill Self means to Kansas is he's probably the second best coach ever. And to be the second best coach at, in my opinion, is the most historic school when it comes to college basketball is an incredibly high pillar to be
0: on. How much longer do you think Bill Self is going to coach? Because he's like 60, 61?
1: He's 59.
0: Oh, Uh, okay. He's a little bit older. So we got at least another decade then, right? Yeah, you would think. Um, Obviously, we still got to see what comes out of these NCAA
1: allegations because maybe he he could take maybe a Larry Brown approach to what he did when he was at KU. He won the 88 championship and then left for the NBA partly because there are a lot of recruiting allegations. And eventually, you know, they got put on probation, got a postseason ban, um, while Larry Brown, right after Larry Brown left. Um, but I think at this rate, Bill Self is committed to Kansas, no matter what happens here. And he like, um, Cal Perry, he's got a lifetime contract with Kansas. So I envision him seeing coaching at least another five to 10 years, um, I guess he could go a little longer, but I mean, in terms of, you know, what he has to do, he has nothing, he has nothing to prove anymore. I think he, he did that this season and you know, kind of just, he, he really cemented his legacy at Kansas and I think he could go out anytime um, and still be considered one, of probably the second best coach ever at Kansas.
0: Where do you think he ranks all-time and just with coaches in general? Where is he? Top five? Top ten?
1: Hmm, top 15. Um, he, is, he is in rare company that he's won two national championships now. Um, in terms of continued success, he, he's pretty high up there. I mean, you look at what he's done since he got to Kansas. They haven't missed the tournament. they won 14 straight Big 12 regular season championships which passed john wins ucla teams um so in terms of continued at least regular season success he's probably top 10 but in terms of overall success he's probably top 15 just because he struggled in the tournament a little bit but yeah you know, i think i think he's put himself pretty high up on the list now with that second national championship probably top 15 all time um I think you can start comparing him to the likes of Coach Thompson. Um, possibly even, I think he might be getting close to Bobby Knight's level even. Um, so I, I'd say he's gotten himself pretty high up on that list with this second national championship.
0: Well, what does he have to do to pass a Roy?
1: I think he needs one more championship, in my opinion. I think, I think you just have to look at Roy Williams and see what he did. Between his times at Kansas and North Carolina, and it's it's pretty incredible. I think he's third all time in wins. Um, I know he's behind
0: Coach K, who's number one. I forget who's number two for some reason. Um, I should know that. Wooden.
1: I don't think it's I don't think it's John Wooden actually. I'd, I'd have to look it up, but I, I think he's third all time in wins. Um, Bill's still pretty far behind him in that sense, but I think. I think if he were to win one more national championship, I think he'd probably be on Roy's level. Um, maybe not quite surpass him yet, but if he were to get another championship, I think he'd be close to Roy's level. And if he could win, if he could possibly even win another one after that, I think he'd be on Coach Case level at that rate. I think he could be up there among the best of all time because he'd have four national championships at that rate. But you know, that's that's a long way down the road. I, you know, who knows how much longer he's got so we could revisit this and you know maybe five to ten years and see where we are
0: then just describe because i don't think a lot of people understand this because when they think of kansas i don't think no people just you know the world's kind of insulated i'm from buffalo i think if you ask people around buffalo they wouldn't necessarily think kansas like about basketball necessarily uh can you just explain what basketball means to kansas
1: basketball is about as historic as you can think because when the inventor of the game itself is your first head coach you're going to be rooted in history you know basketball means everything to to, to kansas i mean this, this is not where the game was invented because nate smith was not at kansas when that happened but when you know you when your first head coach is the inventor of basketball and your second head coach is essentially the guy who revolutionized the game, especially at the college level, it means just about everything. And you have so many committed fans as much as an NBA team. And just to top that off, I mean, what means even more is that the original rules are housed in Allen field house, um, original rules written by James Naismith. So Basketball in Kansas means just about everything, and obviously it's tough for a lot of mainstream basketball fans to think of Kansas and say, "I I don't know what what they've got." I mean, yeah, they've got the college team, but there's not NBA team. There's not you know, on the surface, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of history. But basketball really means everything in Kansas, especially in Lawrence. I mean, basketball is the heart and soul of
0: everything that KU has done. So, how crazy on a 1-10 to 10 do you think it was Monday night in Kansas? Uh, 10. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think you could probably even go to
0: a 15. Oh, a 15? You know, one of the best traditions that KU has
1: um, is that essentially our main street, which is called Massachusetts Street or Mass Street, that's our downtown area, would be when big things happen, sports-wise, everybody floods Mass Street and just celebrates. And they did that for when they made the Final Four this year, and they did it when they made the National Championship. And I think, I think they estimated about seventy thousand people flooded Mass Street when they won this year's championship. So uh, it, I, I, you know, that is my only regret. Actually, you know, I love, I love going down into Worlds and actually being there, but it's. It's incredible to hear all the stories from my friends who were here when they stormed mastery and celebrated for hours on end. You know, things were pretty crazy here. Oh, Nathan,
0: you have to give us some stories. Um, so, I'll tell you one thing. There was
1: a photo that surfaced of a guy dressed up in a Spider-Man costume in a shopping cart. Okay. Surfing, surfing the crowd.
0: He was for sure Um, having a lot of waters then. I yeah,
1: it's, uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, uh, a, lo- a lot of my friends actually happened to be drunk when this was happening. So they can't remember the stories that well. But, I mean, that, uh, that uh, I think Monday night was about as crazy as it could have been. And luck- luckily, most of our professors canceled classes on Tuesday, so we didn't have to worry about it the next day. Um, but, yeah, I mean, on a scale of 1 to 10, it
0: was a 10 or above. Easy. Okay. (laughs) I can only imagine. I can only imagine. (laughs) Nathan, I want to thank you for coming on the pod, man. I appreciate it.
1: Yep, it was an honor being here again.
0: And once again, I want to thank Nathan Swaffer for for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And I want to thank all of you for tuning into this episode, the 415th episode of Barbershop Sports Talk.